Welcome back, y'all, to another episode of the Money Multiplier Podcast, where we ask ourselves, do our dollars make sense? I'm your host, Hannah Kessler, and today we're going to get into part three of The Creature of Jekyll Island, right? So we're reading the book, Creature of Jekyll Island, and I have my co-host on today for this mini-series. And uh, so, John, I mean, welcome back. And I guess I want to ask you before I kind of hand over the mic and we get into the information today, you know, what is your background? All right. I know we didn't do this on the forefront, but I guess I want to let the community know a little bit more about you. Where did you come from? What do you do for business? And really, my question is, why are you so passionate about economics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, First of all, hello again, everybody. Um, And Hannah, it's good to be back with you. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll try to keep it quick, but you know, I can talk about myself for days. Um, I'm 25 years old. Like Hannah, I actually grew up in Kansas City too. Um, as far as my educational background goes, I went to a, a small little school that probably not many of you guys have ever heard of called Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Um, there I have a Bachelor of Science degree in unmanned aircraft systems, and I actually minored in finance. Um, and the world of finance and business has really always been an interest of mine. Obviously, those two don't really line up, so I really had to go out of my way to do that. Um, but you know, it, it was—it's almost an interest out of necessity. Um, you know, I can empathize with anyone that you know really feels like you know their pub, the public education system failed them when it comes to money-related topics um, and, and you know anything that's just past the basics. Um, but you know, I've gotten to where I am now with a lot of reading, with a lot of you know curiosity and research of my own. Um, you know, the courses I took uh, in college, uh, you know, really gave me a good start and a good foundation. But ultimately, you know, regarding the topic of money, I guess a lot of the learning uh, that you know you you have to do it's it's out there. You have to do it yourself um, and on your own. Um, but, you know, I had some help along the way. While in college, uh, I actually started working at a bar called the world's most famous brewery. Um, and this is where I met two very important people, Krista and Tom and, and Hannah, too, actually. Um, I think we went there the first time we ever met. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, Krista and Tom are absolute rock stars or some of my idols. They're the owners of the bar. Um, they're both very involved in real estate and other entrepreneurial ventures. Um, Tom's got to be one of the best real estate agents in Daytona Beach, um, if not that part of Florida. Um, And then just like Hannah, Krista for sure is one of the most badass boss ladies I've ever met. Um, In my time working there, she actually wrote a book, uh, uh, Krista, and uh, the book is called The Boss Lady Investor. You don't need a dick to understand money. (laughs) So if that's not a catchy title, then I don't know what is. Um, and Hannah, I think I'm going to beg you to probably put a link into it somewhere so I can at least get that plug. (laughs) No, I will. I'll put it down in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I learned a lot from them. Uh, and I started with them when they first opened this place, I was literally employee number two. Um, so for a long while, you know, it was, they were having business meetings there. So I was just able to listen and observe. And, you know, I asked them a lot of questions along the way. Um, but you know, I love that job. It was a lot of fun working for them. Uh, fast forward to now, um, having graduated and, you know, living my own life, I'm actually a pilot for a drone light show company. 
Um, you can find our work if you look us up, Firefly Drone Shows, uh, on any social media or YouTube, just or our website. Um, when I'm not working, I'm a big fan of racing and Formula One. I love traveling, reading, hiking, pretty much any outdoor activity. Like Hannah, I'm a big craft beer snob as well. Um, but what you really need to know about me and I guess my relevance to this podcast is, you know, I, I'm just a really big nerd who loves the topic of money. <laughs> um, I think, you know, Hannah, you, you run into a lot of people like me as well. Um, but my goal is to be a good example uh, for Hannah to use in this podcast, maybe as someone who has a somewhat traditional W-2 career that, you know, I absolutely love. Definitely not looking to leave anytime soon. Um, but, you know, having the passion and the curiosity to do the extra money things um, on the side. So I hope that was kind of what you're looking for. But that's that's me. <laughs> yeah, that was good. No, you're a very, very interesting cat, honestly. And, and that's why I enjoy <laughs> hanging out with you and, and always chatting with you. Um, I think one thing that you said is very, very important that it's not we're not taught traditionally how money really works. Mm-hmm. I actually read not too long ago. I forgot where I read this at. But even like uh, the big politicians and leaders and uh, economists out there, some of them can't even agree on what the definition of money is. And so it really is up to us taking the ownership within our financial life to want to go out and seek that information. So I think that is very, very powerful. And absolutely, I'll plug Krista's book. Krista and Tom are wonderful people and very knowledgeable as well. Just pleasant, pleasant people to be around. But um, I, as actually, as we're sitting here, it's Friday, you know, so the weekend's coming up. Do you have any weekend plans? Um, I'm actually just chilling and catching up on some tor- uh, chores this week. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, it, it has been a while too. I want to apologize to everyone that hopefully, you know, we, I know we said we were going to be back pretty soon with this third episode, but, um, uh, I actually just got back from a show in Orlando. And then literally before that, I was actually in Squim, Washington for another drone show. Um, and I know Hannah, you've been on the move a bit too. Uh, you're in Texas right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, So uh, what are you up to? What's next for you and uh, the money multiplier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, because as y'all can tell on YouTube, I'm not in my normal office right now. I'm actually reporting live. It's uh, from we call them Nanny and Papa. They're my grandparents. So I'm up here on the second story uh, level and I'm uh, talking from uh, the room that I'm staying in right now. But uh, they're in Dallas. They live in Trophy Club, just right there in the Dallas area. And last night was our first ever um, live event, the TMM 23 and 23. So that was fun. It was a pleasure to meet and see a few of your faces. And for y'all who didn't come, you missed out. I was up there teaching. Dad was up there teaching. So um, it's not too late. You still have the opportunity to come and see us live uh, because we're traveling around to you this year. So 23 different cities. And um, as always, go to our website and I'll put the uh, links down below of where you can see what cities we're popping up at. And they're free events, y'all. So there's no excuse not to come and join. Okay. I promise you, if you come out and you regret, you say, this is the worst thing I ever did. I promise I will donate a hundred dollars to your favorite charity. Quote me on that. Okay. Save this episode and quote me on that. All right. But um, a few, a few announcements, like I said, you know, we got the live events that are coming up and um, 
As always, you know, so we're always here answering your questions. Okay. So write into us, email, phone call, uh, the website, go to the YouTubes, everything, you know, so we're just here delivering the message to you of why privatized banking is so important. And just quickly, just a recap, you know, that's why we, we are doing this podcast series <laughs> so that as Nelson Nash used to say, he says, hey, if you can really understand the problem, the solution is very clear and easy. And so the solution, what I do all day long as John is out there flying his drones, I'm over here teaching about the solution to the problem that's caused within our economic society right now. So um, anyways, let's get into it. So today we're going to review chapter four in section one of Edward Griffin's book, Preacher of Jekyll Island. Go out there, go purchase it on Amazon or, or wherever you get your books. It's out there. And hopefully you're taking note of how the government intervention in the free market and our currency is causing more harm to us than good. So our current system encourages these harmful and risky business practices, you know, with the ability to destroy our purchasing power by making money out of thin air. AKA what we covered on the last episode titled Bailouts and Bullies. Uh, the name of the game is Bailout, is what Edward Griffin calls it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the one topic we, you know, we have for you all today is kind of the beginning of the conversation, um, I guess, for the topic. And we're going to cover a, a few pieces of it. Um, I'm sure we'll touch back another time, but we're going to talk about the big, fat, juicy residential mortgage industry business. Um, and, and bear with us. We're going to move fast um, and we're going to try to keep it interesting. But, you know, there is a lot of information we got to get across. Um, so we're going to go back in time a bit to start to give you a little bit of background on some of our more modern financial institutions um, regarding homes and, you know, how living, you know, home is, homes and living. Um, the, the government agencies got their start associated with that. Um, we're going to be going back to the Great Depression era. Don't worry, though, I'll skip all the causes of that, as hopefully I'll remember those if you can pick up a history book. Um, and, and if not, maybe we'll do that in another episode. Who knows if, if you guys really want that. <laughs> um, but instead, we're going to focus on the recovery. Um, and, you know, I want to I want you all to remember, too, the creature we're trying to understand. You know, we're not looking into the financial woes. We're trying to understand the Federal Reserve System and their role in all of this. Right. Um, so, you know, we're trying to understand the Fed and the goals of those six men that met at Jekyll Island nearly 20 years before the Great Depression. Um, but, yeah, so let's uh, start by discussing the savings and loan industry. Um, from here on out, we're going to refer to them as SNLs or more broadly thrifts. Um, coincidentally, throughout our modern financial history, SNLs, while not necessarily the most sound banking institutions, they were the most honest. <laughs> um, thrifts had to advertise their savings products as time deposits. Um, unlike that of current banking practices, uh, you know, seeing as how all bank deposits are time deposits, meaning you put money in with the understanding that you cannot get all of it out right away. Um, you know, you, there will be a waiting period or there will be a minimum withdrawal amount. That's how thrifts had to operate. Um, you know, at this era in our financial history. Um, and I think one of the biggest lessons that we can teach you is that banks don't necessarily have to give you your money back when you ask for it, even right now. 
Um, you would like them to, you would expect them to, but they don't have to. Um, and I swear it's just the best coincidence <laughs> um, with what we have going right now on out right now with uh, SVB and Signature Bank. Um, and I know Hannah, yeah, you obviously have the plug here with if you want guys want to play store your money, Hannah's lady to talk to right there. <laughs> um, but back to Griffin's writing, we won't spend much time digging into it, but we you know we do have to explore the governing philosophy, um, I guess, and the the connection the federal government has. Um, to banking. Um, and, you know, this is where we have to discuss the rise of socialism and not, o- not only abroad, but within our own government. Um, beginning in the Great Depression era of the 1930s, um, you know, policy- politicians and lawmakers, you know, were really amazed by the ability of radical Marxists to gain popular support um, by blaming the capitalist system for the country's hardships of the time. Um, and the United States, uh, even by successfully implementing popular socialist government programs, that support's recognized. Um, and, and as Griffin puts it, while the extreme and violent aspects of communism were generally rejected, the more genteel theories of socialism became popular among everyone. Um, the educated elite liked their superior role in the system, and the largely uneducated masses, as they, on paper at least, um, would stand to gain from the programs that would come to their rescue. Um, and, you know, keep in mind, these were difficult times. You know, I, I'm going to interject my food for thought kind of thing here that to keep at the back of your head. Um, and, and, and I'm willing to stand by this uh, even in our conversation today that, you know, free market capitalism, while productive and necessary, does have some evils. You know, I'll concede that. However, those evils pale in comparison to what the government and the Federal Reserve can, has the power to do, and often does do to uh, the American citizen's financial condition. Um, but back to the text, the the greater American or the the greater American public um, in the 1930s was in a very extremely vulnerable state. Um, you know, there were largely uneducated, I think something I recall, like 30% of Americans only attended higher uh, educational institutions. Uh, but times were bad. You know, we've all heard the stories of what life was like through the decade. And with that struggling in the woes 1929, you know, socialist ideas and agendas were very popular amongst the majority of Americans. Um, so, you know, when more than 1900 SNLs failed in the late tw- late 20s, um, the government and President Herbert Hoover, it was up to them to come to the rescue. Um, they did this by enacting laws and programs that substantially expanded the reach of, uh, of the federal government into the financial sector. Um, before that, they were pretty well segregated, but the Great Depression era is when a lot of this, this mixing happened. Um, if you want to go further into it, start digging into all of the emergency legislation that was signed into law. Um, and, and, you know, even as an exercise, maybe it, it's a good practice to look into all the emergency legislation that's been signed into law the last three years with COVID um, and even with uh, our, our current banking <laughs> troubles. Um, but I'll, uh, you know, think about that with the big picture, too. And, uh, Hannah, I'll stop talking for a second and let you, <laughs> you say your stuff. No, I do agree with you. And I'm very, very happy that we're going through the history of it because I think a lot of people during those times, like within the 30s, the public was very 
open to wanting the help from the government because of just the times that it was in. And I think that's what really commingled everything to get it into the big animal and monster that we are here dealing with today. And so I just asked the community, you know, just open up your eyes and think for yourself sometimes. Just think about what's really going on because some of the things that you hear on the news or from the leaders, hey, it may not actually be the truth. I'm going to bring out that Will Rogers quote real quick. The problem in America isn't so much what people don't know. It's what they think they know that just ain't so. So I just encourage you just to kind of open up your eyes and really see what's going on and kind of go back through history. I know sometimes it can be a homework or a chore to y'all, but that's why we're here doing the research for you. So just plug in your headphones, go do your dishes and just learn with us here now. Anywho, I want to dive into another one. The Federal Home Loan Bank Board. The Federal Home Loan Bank Board, or what's called the FHLBB, was created under the Hoover administration in 1932. The job of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, as stated by themselves, was to provide long-term advances to their member banks collateralized by residential mortgage loans and government securities. So broken down, the job of the FHLBB, it's very long, of them is to lend government money and use its federal branding status as a way to give up the seal of approval to small local banks issuing mortgage loans. Thus, giving them the appearance that the government was coming to the rescue and forcing the banks to make concessions for the greater good of the American economy. By offering these loans at rates non-member banks just couldn't compete with. There were two big things you need to take away from the legislation which brought the FHLBB into existence. So number one, you know, it bought home mortgage loans into the federal arena for the first time. And then number two, it was intended to be a temporary measure temporary measure. So it was signed into law with an expiration date, but as with this, many other emergency aid programs that date was extended time and time again before eventually becoming a permanent entity of our federal system. Remember, this is in 1932. So the U.S. economy is an economic ruin as we discuss the other policies put into place over the last few years. So the things really got out of whack when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected president in 1933. So earlier in his political career, you know, FDR was the paragon for the free market and individualism. But somewhere along the way in his presidency, his ideas shifted with the shifting political winds and the government parentalism. I think I'm saying that word correctly, parentalism in the SNL industry with the creation of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC and the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation, what's called the FSLIC. So losses were now a problem of the government and not the bank managers and owners who run these financial institutes. So just real quick, just recap, 
all of this is now falling within the government and not on the higher ups, the managers of those banks and their executives. Exactly, exactly. Um, and yeah, uh, forgive us. The, these some of these uh, acronyms are a mouthful. <laughs> We're going to butcher a few of them. Um, but you know, about the same time, uh, and in conjunction with the FHLBB, the Federal Housing Authority, or FHA, you've probably heard of that, was signed into life, um, allowing the SNLs to make loans at lower rates than would have been possible. Um, they did this by giving them a subsidy to do so. Uh, the stated goal was to give an opportunity to anyone who wanted a house the chance to buy one. That sounds like a pretty reasonable goal, right? Um, you know, however, the stated goal was to give anyone uh, a chance to buy a house if they wanted to. That's pretty reasonable, right? Um, you know, but however, you know, measures as drastic and lofty as a goal like that uh, had to have some shortfalls eventually, right? So in the beginning, you know, as designed, people were able to purchase a home who otherwise might not have been able to do so. Um, but, you know, as the scheme began to play out, the laws of supply and demand had to come in and have their effect right. Um, so the end result of all of this FHA induced credit or money injection into the economy was an increase in housing prices coincidentally, almost equal to the amount that the government was injecting into it <laughs> with their subsidized right. loans. Crazy, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, if, if you look at this on the big picture, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, you got to think of it as a ratio too. But in the big picture is actually a very clever maneuver to deceive the American population. Um, all the FHA really did was just increase the total capitalization of the housing sector. So there was more money in the pot to be lent by banks. You know, this means more profit for those backing uh, financial institutions. Um, and, and, you know, like I think we said in the last episode, you know, a, a $10,000 loan and a $10 million loan take the same amount of effort to give, right? Yeah. But you're going to give that $10 million loan every time because it's way more profitable. You get way more money out of it. Um, so in short, all the FHA did really in the 30s was artificially inflate the housing market for the benefit of the financiers uh, who held these residential mortgages on their portfolios. Um, so I think that's a quick rundown of the FHA. Hannah, do you want to get us going into the next one? Yeah, yeah, because this is where it all kind of collapses uh, in all together, in my opinion. So here's what I really like to talk about the FDIC and the FSLIC. Now, I know we did touch on the um, FDIC a little bit past in the uh, last episodes in this mini series, um, but today we're really going to focus on the FSLIC, which for all the practical purposes acts the same way, but for the SNL industry rather than the banking industry. So the FSLIC or the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation was established by Congress in 1934 alongside the FDIC. Um, however, the FSLIC shares similar responsibilities with the FDIC. However, its scope is restricted to the savings and the loans industry. So in 1989, it was dissolved and absorbed into the FDIC, 
but we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, and uh, un- unfortunately, you know, while the FDIC and FSLIC are largely accredited with being the saviors of the financial world, um, you know, I can think about a few instances, you know, and then we can even look at a few months ago um, where that's the case. Um, but, you know, it's in our minds, it's also the biggest detriment to the financial world. For example, we'll move forward a few decades from the Great Depression to 1979. Um, throughout the year, the Fed had been increasing interest rates and the SNLs had to keep up to attract deposits. Um, hint, hint, wink, wink, what's the Fed doing right now, right? By December of 1980, they were paying 15.8% on money market certificates, yet the average rate they were charging for new mortgages was only 12.9%. That's a pretty inefficient business model right there. Um, yet even further, Many of the loans they had made in the prior years were chugging away at seven to nine percent, you know, not including the five plus percent of loans that were default nationwide. Um, that's a figure not seen again until 2008. Um, you know, just take a moment to think about that in today's climate. How many people refinanced their home in 2020 and 2021 at, you know, below five percent when I think you'd be lucky to get anywhere, you know, about eight percent right now, right? So, I don't want to say history is repeating itself, but it's looking that way, isn't it? Um, you know, regardless so of all of that, thrifts were operating deep in the red. Um, you know, they had to make up the difference somewhere. So the weakest and most desperate institutions really had no choice but to pay out the highest interest rates to attract depositors. Um, coincidentally, you know, the average American is completely unaware of this predicament they're finding themselves in. Um, so a large portion of those deposits came from brokered funds, um, you know, at the institutional level. Uh, and, and, you know, they were, you know, they didn't really care because their, their brokered funds were already federally fully insured by the government. So, you know, it, we find ourselves in a situation of risk doesn't mean anything because the government is going to be there to take care of the losses at the end of the day on both sides of it. Um, with the SNLs and then with the brokered funds, so the 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 you know the only person who really suffers is the average American who comes along and puts their money into it. Um, so <laughs> it's 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 really yeah it's it's hard to talk about. But uh, Hannah, I know you got some stuff to say. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's exactly it. And I actually just want to take it here too. Let's look at the side of the SNLs as well. All right. So the thrift managers, they reckoned that while they had those funds, they had to make miracles with them. And thanks to the government and the FSLIC, risk meant nothing to them. And it went under and the deposits they lost, the loss would be covered. Right. That's what the FSLIC is there for. We're going to butch it up a few times, but that's OK. So um, so the, they went under. As this scheme played out through the early 1980s, deals went sour, and eventually the accumulative net worth of the federal insured SNLs became negative despite the positive GDP growth. 
So in August of 1982, Congress responded to the country's economic woes by publicly declaring that the full faith and credit of the United States government stood beside the FSLIC. I should say behind. They stood behind them. So in that moment, this eased some of the pressure Americans were feeling, but it wouldn't be the end of it. And do I need to remind you the only funds of the government has come from the taxes and printing money thanks to us leaving the gold standard in 1971, right? So so they don't make money, right? How does the government make money? We, the taxpayers, we pay them the money. Oh, and then also, you know, they also do have this thing called the Federal Reserve System where there's a printing press in their backyard and they can just create all of that money out of thin air. Because remember, Nixon was the one that took our away from the gold standard and literally devalued the money. And so now it's not tied to anything. It's literally the same exact dollar as if you were to go and find your monopoly board right now and take out that paper play money. That's literally all it is and what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try to get back to this. That was a good little tangent though. I like it. <laughs> um, you know, the dire situation, the SNLs, were in really came to light in 1985, um, and this is an example when the Home Savings Bank of Cincinnati collapsed. Um, there were rumors spread about a uh, 150 million dollar loss to a securities firm in Florida um, that triggered a bank run. Um, not only Home Savings Bank's 33 bar- branches, um, but nearly every single SNL in the state of Ohio. Um, had had de- their depositors, you know, even, you know, whether it's general consumers or money at the institutional level, they're all coming to try to get their money out. And in only a few days, nearly $60 million flooded from Ohio's own deposit insurance fund. So every state, you know, as part of being the part of the FDIC has their own state level one too. So, you know, the Ohio's, uh, for instance, in, uh, in 1985, only held $130 million. In a couple of days, it lost 60 million of that. Um, on March 15th, the governor of Ohio declared a bank holiday and closed all of the state insured thrifts. Um, publicly, this action was stated as a cooling off period, you know, let them give them some time. But what this really was, was a maneuver, I spoiled it, was to buy them some time so they could go make their pilgrimage to Washington and plead their case to Congress, right? Um, and be able to get these federal funds. Um, and with the help of Fed Chairman Vol- Paul Volkler, uh, that help was undoubtedly extended. Uh, so a few days later, depositors were allowed to withdraw $750 per account. Um, six days after the uh, bank holiday, President Ronald Reagan actually uh, publicly came, uh, stated that the crisis was over and problems were isolated to Ohio. Um, mm-hmm. But keep in mind, 1985, we're going to talk about some of those, some other stuff that happened a little bit later on. Um, but yeah, and I, I know you, yeah, you got some more yeah. notes. Well, well, and to be honest, I mean, there, there we go again with having the leaders come out and present something to the American public. And why do we just take it at face value? Um, you know, Nelson Nash used to say this a lot, too. He believes that us, the public, we just don't think enough for ourselves. I don't know what it is or what happened, but we just don't think enough. We're just fed all of these half truths and then we just run with it. We just run like the wind with all these fat, these half truths and we never go 
back and fact check any of this. But there I go on my other tangent again. So before we get too carried away with the examples, let's look at some of the legislation that led to yet further failures. So in the early days of the Reagan administration, regulators were changed so that SNLs were no longer restricted to the arena of home mortgages, um, the sole reason for this creation, right? So this allowed billions of dollars to be lent to commercial ventures, which were more profitable, much more profitable, I'll say, but far riskier. This alone was not enough for the already underwater SNLs to perpetuate their debt game as the government soon started changing accounting rules. Thanks to the Garn Street Garmin Act of 1982, thrifts were allowed to lend in an amount of money equal to the appraised value of a real estate asset rather than its marketed value, its market value. It didn't take long for the appraisers to start receiving handsome incentives for unrealistic appraisals. So now while this sounds a lot like fraud, it was the intent of the regulators proven by the GAAP's adoption of the term appraised equity, where this was over-evaluation could be counted as the same as cash. Does that make sense? John, you explain it better, though. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the the, the Garn St. Germain Act, you know, was really a pivotal moment. It allowed, I'll, I'll just rephrase kind of everything because it is a very important um, point. They allowed the SNLs, so instead of, you know, counting the market value of, we'll, we'll stick to home mortgage loans. So say your house is worth $300,000. That's what you can sell it for on the market today. They would go find an appraiser, um, like an, a license at the state level, whatever appraiser that would, and you know, be like, hey, hint, uh, hint, hint, wink, wink. We'll give you a nice handy fee if you can say this house is worth four hundred thousand dollars. You know, the house is only really worth three hundred thousand. That's what you're getting, but for the bank, it's getting appraised at four hundred thousand. So that means that. The bank has a hundred thousand dollars just created out of nothing that they can go lend because the regulations say they're allowed to do that, yep. which is the math ain't math in there. Um, yeah. And then the GAAP, that's GAP, uh, that stands for Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. Um, that is like, yeah, I, I guess a good way to put it is that that's they make the rule book for accounting. Um, so they actually adopted a term that reflected that. So, you know, you can't fake like th this is legalized fraud, uh, in my opinion, <laughs> is, is what happened here. Um, but, you know, yeah, I just can't stress how unbelievable that that is. Like looking back the first time I learned this, it was just like crazy. Um, like said, my community. I, I think he explains it so well that that's why I have John here. He explains <laughs> it so much better than I do. No, keep going, man. Um, but yeah, like I said, this really was just an open invitation to fraud by the SNLs. Um, and to add some numbers, in the early 80s, SNLs were allowed to lend $33 for every dollar that they kept in reserves. Now, keep in mind that dollar reserve could be backed by an imaginary overpraised collateralization for on a house, right? So, you know, just to summarize, if a lending institution could find a way to have a, a number of their mortgage loans overappraised by a million dollars, that meant they were allowed to lend out $33 million. 
that's fractional reserve banking for you. <laughs> um, so, you know, as this played out by 1984, the fallout of, we'll call that a Hail Mary uh, effort by the regulators, um, began to play out. Institutions started dropping like flies. Um, the FDIC and FSLIC had to come in, work their magic um, in order to persuade the healthy banks that actually had sounding, uh, sorry, sound, you know, lending practices. Um, they had to it, it persuade them to absorb the insolvent ones. Um, you know, so because the government couldn't take all of those bad loans, they had to, you know, make a deal somewhere. Um, but the government would provide cash settlements to good banks to take on the bad loans. So in 1984 alone, this cost the FDIC over a billion dollars. Between 1980 and 1986, a total of 664 savings and loan institutions would fail. Um, Yeah. (laughs) No, and I'll continue on too. I mean, in March of 1986, the FSLIC had only three cents for every dollar of deposits that they had there. By 1989, the FSLIC had less than two-tenths of a penny for every $1 insured and was losing some $35 million a day. And still the government wouldn't cut there or our losses on the hopeless SNL industry. Right. Yeah. And uh, in February of 1989, an agreement was reached uh, between Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan and a guy named da- uh, uh, Danny Wall. He's a chairman of the FHLBB to discuss the the bailout of, and this is another example, of Commonwealth Savings Company of Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, a completely insolvent SNL or some $60 million in deposits were only being covered by a state fund of $2 million. Um, you know, the purpose of this ag- agreement was uh, to you know, come up with a maneuver where $70 billion of bailout money was going to come directly from the Federal Reserve. This was a huge break in precedent because it meant for the first time money, which was created out of nothing uh, for the purposes of lending, was used to bail out a savings institution without the approval of Congress. So this is the Fed who is in itself a private company, right, um, appointed by the um, executive branch, bypassing Congress to give a significant portion of government funds to a failing bank. Um, and, and this is just one example. Let's think about this on the big scale. This was a huge break in precedent because it meant for the first time, you know, money that was created by the Fed out of nothing was used to bail out a savings institution without the approval of Congress, okay? Let's think about this on a big scale. You know, we have a private entity called the Federal Reserve completely skipping Congress, a.k.a. the citizens' representation, right, (laughs) In, in government, creating money out of thin air that Americans will pay for through inflation or taxes to give to a bank to bail out its depositors. Um, you know, there's no basis for this action in the Federal Reserve Act. You know, technically, you could say this was an illegal uh, action the Fed was doing, but Congress didn't do anything about it. Um, you know, uh, until five months later, they they passed a, a Financial Institutions Recovery and Reform Act, 
um, that eliminated the FSLIC because it was just hopelessly insolvent, insolvent um, and ad- allocated $300 billion to bail out the SNL industry. Less than a year later, uh, Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan publicly stated that the bailout would actually cost around $500 billion, um, far greater than pennies, 300 to 500. <laughs> uh, it's just, yeah, little, yeah, yeah, you know. The, this just to put that in perspective, that amount was actually greater than the default on the loans to every third world country that we have made prior to that point. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I, I mean, listeners, y'all, the community, I hope this is kind of waking you up and it's kind of pissing you off. Because to be honest with you, it kind of pisses me off that this stuff is going on right under, underneath our noses. And the idea is, is that, hey, we'll just keep them uneducated. They they just won't know what's really going on because we just won't tell them. Right. So I need to remind you, too, that throughout this whole process, the government and the financers carefully played the debt game over and over again with small little changes in accounting standards and rebranding of the securities they held just to keep up with the facade of the sound operation. All of that is covered in the text if you want to learn about it more and more. But for us, in the sake of your time today, we'll move on. So all of you need to know that the true cost of supporting a dying SNL industry is much higher than any government official will publicly state. Yeah. And the last thing I think we should cover today is the evolution of the bond market around this time, because they, they everything you know works together in their own ways. Um, but this is actually this is really super interesting. I just want to talk about it. <laughs> Um, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, if you recall from our first episode where we discussed some of the motives for the Jekyll Island Club members, a.k.a. the six men that met there, um, you'll remember we talked about the growing trend of the industry to finance business growth with their own profits rather than financing debt, right? Um, and how that had to be stopped, you know, back in, uh, you know, in 1912, what, what, what date did they meet? <laughs> 1912, 18, somewhere in there. Um, so throughout the woes of the thrift industry, a common face of blame was put on so-called junk bonds. Okay. Big money managers and even those at the Fed were saying it was the junk bonds that caused all these problems for the SNLs, right? You know, they they were the bad loans. The junk bonds are the bad loans, not the subsidized mortgages. Um, so you know, the funny thing is, is the junk bonds, junk bonds, sarcastically saying that, were anything but junk. They were actually some of the best performing securities in that decade. <laughs> um you know, you know, the, the, in terms of risk return ratios, they were far superior to Fortune 500 company bonds. Um, you know, the, these are the kind, of the, the kind of bonds that local and state thrifts invested in did not touch Wall Street at all, and that was the big problem. Was they bypassed Wall Street in order to, you know, get the money to the uh, from the, the from the lender to the lendee. So at this time, Fortune 500 companies were contracting. Um, they were cutting. They cut 3.6 million jobs between 1985 and 1995. Um, while in the smaller private sector, which is where these junk bonds—again, I say that sarcastically—they 
uh, where that money was flowing, 18 million new jobs were created, right? <laughs> okay. So, you know, and I'll, I'll, not all of them were winners, but in the aggregate, the numbers don't lie. So between 1981 and 1991, the average 10-year Treasury bill return was 10.4%. Okay. The Dow Jones was 12.9%. So-called junk bonds, 14.1%. And again, all the money that went to those high-performing bonds skipped Wall Street. Um, And uh, yeah, so that was the problem to the monetary scientists in New York, at the Fed, at the government. You know, all of this money was completely bypassing them. Um, And the mechanism at which they used to put themselves back into the loop is the government regulation in the SNL industry. So in 1989, the Financial Institution Reform and Recovery Act was passed, which forced SNLs to remove all of the junk bonds from their portfolio because, according to the Fed and the government, they were to blame. However, these securities, only represented 1.2% of everything the thrift industry held. So you're going to blame the entire fall of it on something that they only had a percent stake in. Um, And, and, you know, to the average American, if the banks, you know, or, you know, the, the big lenders weren't allowed to touch them, that must mean, oh, hey, I better stay away from these too. So I guess what we're trying to say is all of this was, I don't want to say a big ploy. This I'm going to sound like it's conspiracy theory now, but all of this could have been a big ploy just to refunnel all of those funds that were leaving Wall Street just to go back. Um, the exact same thing that you know when the, these six guys met at Jekyll Island wanted to do then um, was happening again back in the eighties. <laughs> in the eighties, well, um, so. <laughs> and actually, John, I think we talked about this offline, but you know. Um, Edward Griffin does get a little bit conspiracy theory, if you want to call it. I mean, I personally, I love conspiracy theory. <laughs> I agree with you. I, I think there's a lot more going on than what we're led to believe and a lot of stuff going on under our noses. And I mean, just to be honest with you, I think there's big things playing here to the new world order. Um, I won't touch on that just because I do want to keep this all fact-based. Maybe next episode we'll get into um, a little bit more of that of opinions rather than facts. But I I mean, these are facts right here that John has given us. The 1.2% of the thrift industry, that is the only junk bonds that they hold. And now they're blaming that, the whole junk bonds for everything collapsing. I mean, y'all, come on now. Just be real with us. And and really, I think why they do it is because then once they put the blame on something or someone, then the public says, all right, well, they're to blame. We'll just keep going this way. Here I go back full circle again to people are just fed these half truths and then they just run with it. So I don't know. So here's something else. We'll get back to it. The real problem within the SNL industry is government regulation, which has squeezed it from the free market and encouraged it to embark upon unsound business plays. And I think I should share a quote here. So this is um, something I believe John actually went out and did this research for us. So thanks, John. We we appreciate you. And so it's a quote from the Wall Street Journal on March 10th, 1992. And this is how they said it best. If you're going to wreck a business the size of the U.S. thrift industry, you need a lot more power than Michael Milken ever had. 
You need the power of national political authority, the kind of power possessed only by regulators and Congress. Whatever hold junk bonds may have had on the SNLs, it was nothing compared to the interventions of Congress. And end quote. Okay. So, so Congress has suspended and violated the natural laws that drive the free market economy. And remember y'all, you know, Nelson Nash follows the Austrian school of economics. This means freedom, justice, and little to no government intervention. The SNL's institutions are literally a cartel operating within a cartel. I know that's a very bold statement, but that is just, I guess, my personal opinion. I think it could be fact, but that's my opinion. (laughs) Uh, They're literally a cartel operating within a cartel, and it could not function without Congress standing by to push unlimited amounts of money into it. And Congress couldn't do that without the banking cartel known as the Federal Reserve System standing by to create the money out of nothing and be a lender of last resort. So tinkering with the laws of supply and demand and having the hidden tax of inflation has driven prices far beyond the reach of many and wiped out down payments of others. So without this, common people would have much more money, purchasing power of our dollar would be far greater, and homes would be well within our reach. And just quickly, before we move on, and I think maybe we'll kind of get to the end here, because I know we're, I don't know, we might be in an hour into this, and I promise we'll come back with more and more series here. But it's really funny how the Federal Reserve System was created to be the lender of last resort, but there's so many other um, factors that play into this whole equation that could have prevented all of this from happening to become the lender of the last resort. Yeah, I, I I don't think I could have said it better myself. Um, but yeah, I, I'm okay to stop today if that's if that's good with you too. Yeah, yeah. So, John, do you, do you have anything that you want to say before we log off here? Um, yeah, I, I guess all I can think about is we skipped a lot of the material in the text today too. Like like I said, we're just going to try to give you the highlights and bullet points here. But if you really want to get into it on your own, um, I definitely encourage you to read it on your own. Um, and I actually even found a free PDF online of this book. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's an earlier version, um, but it has all of the information in it, too. And Hannah, last link I'm going to try to get you to put in the, the notes on this. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, actually, I'm very happy that you brought up in the earlier episode about uh, your your drones and, and your business that you're um, with, because honestly, go check them out. They're really, really cool. I'll even post the link of their website below, um, but they're doing some big, big things. Yeah. So I'm proud of you, man. You're, you're doing S- since all my bosses listen to this podcast, too, I have to put the disclaimer. All of my opinions don't reflect Firefly <laughs> or any of them. <laughs> Oh, that's good. All right. Well, I appreciate you. I'll let you get back to your day. And um, until next time, y'all, we ask ourselves, do our dollars make sense? I I hope you're getting some value and you're learning more and more. And um, please, like I said, write into us. If you got questions, if you got topics, you know how to get a hold of me. I share my cell phone around to everybody. So text me, call me, send me an email, hannah at themoneymultiplier.com. And uh, until next time, we'll catch you then. Bye now.